King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. 
These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to the counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies, rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's so great to have you with us this morning as we continue our sermon series in Daniel. And um, well, I just think Daniel's such a, a wonderful challenge to us all, isn't it? Shelby just shared, wouldn't it be great if we got to the point where 80% of the church were doing something serving God in some way, collectively, deliberately. Sometimes people say, well, there aren't enough jobs for 80% of the church to all have a job, and I think, crumbs. (laughs) If we're just trying to give out jobs, I can see why people might think that, but we're not trying to just give out jobs. We're trying to live a life of mission, a life of service, a life of discipleship. And for each one of us, we've got the opportunity to share about Jesus with somebody, right? I often feel like if we were a more Pentecostal church, these are the moments where I'd get an amen. And I would feel like, (laughs) I would feel like I wasn't just speaking for myself, but I was speaking for all of us. And, you know, growing up, someone once challenged me, if you 
My pastor growing up challenged me, if you pray and ask God, maybe he'll give you an opportunity to share with somebody this coming week. And I thought, I don't know how that would work. I mean, what, God's just going to engineer a scenario where I've got the opportunity to share my faith in him? And uh, I kind of dismissed it out of hand. I thought, wow, I'm not sure that that's how this all works. Of course, that is how this all works, actually. If you just keep your eyes open, let alone praying and asking God to do something that he already wants you to do. And isn't that the basis of good prayer? <laughs> Where we ask God for the things that his, his desire, his heart, his righteousness is already for. Things that you don't really need to even ask about because it was already his heart. But in asking for these opportunities, I found every time I've prayed that prayer, and I don't mean this to be some sort of strange Christian mysticism. Every time I pray, blah, 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 blah. No, seriously, really practically, every time I pray for an opportunity that I will encounter somebody that I can share my faith with, I find that there are about three or four throughout my week. And you see, it's not just about doing jobs. It's not about a holy 10% serving the church, doing the work of church. It's about being men and women, fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, Mummies and daddies, grandmas and grandpas, boys and girls, men and women, who are choosing to put God first. Letting our first identity be as sons and daughters of God. Serving his plans and his purposes. And as we get into this story, I think there's a great witness to us about prioritising the ways of God. Prioritising... God's purpose, righteousness and holiness before all else. Each week I try and come up with a a sermon title. Sometimes I forget to say it, but I try and do it for those of you who like to write notes. And uh, I don't know this for certain, but I like to think of it being a bit like a a fast track pass when you go to a theme park if you write notes maybe you'll get into heaven a little bit quicker by showing you're working Uh, just for the sake of clarity that's definitely bad theology (laughs) but um, I think it's so encouraging when we write notes because then we've got the opportunity to go back over what we've heard and think about it more deeply they say the dullest pencil is sharper than the sharpest mind And so my title this morning is Our Unstoppable God. And I just found myself time and again, and again and again and again throughout this week as I reflected on this story, struck by God's awesome power, his ability to just do more than enough, more than our basic need, more than what seems plausible or likely. And sometimes we read these stories and we reread them again and again and again. And if you, like me, I grew up in a a Christian family. My grandparents were missionaries. My parents helped plant a church. I mean, I'm pretty well churched. And it's easy to begin to start hearing these stories and forgetting that these stories aren't just stories of faith, stories that we've grown up with. These stories are true. And like your favourite children's character, whether that's Winnie the Pooh or whatever passes for children's entertainment these days, 
it's so easy to begin to let that same childhood perspective fill your mind and lose touch with the reality of this story and others in the Bible. And as I was thinking about this story, I was thinking, wow, I mean, let's just stop and think about it for a moment. Rachel just read it for us, so I'm not going to read it all again from the beginning. But, you know, there are some incredible things in this story. This golden image being made on this ginormous plane, this huge piece of land, this absolutely monumental monument. (laughs) This thing is absolutely flipping huge. And actually, as I was trying to work out how big it is, I was trying to work it through, and I think it's approximately three times the height of the church here in Ainsford. And for those of you who are most familiar with the church in stone, it's six times the height of the building in stone. Standing on the front driveway looking straight up, if you think of that, stacked six times on top of itself. Or perhaps you're most familiar with stories. Some people estimate it was ten stories tall. Now, that would be a pretty big church, wouldn't it? (laughs) What was the last 10-story building you were in? In Dartford, we have a planning policy that says you're not meant to go above five stories. In parts of Kent, where we're trying to maintain the historic legacy of uh, many centuries of buildings and all the history that goes therewith, I can't think of very many 10-storey buildings, can you? So imagine the the biggest open space that you can think of nearby to us. And imagine somebody erecting a 10-storey. It says golden image, and most people agree it was probably gold-plated rather than solid gold. And I was reading that, and I read that in one of the commentaries as I was doing my research, And they made it kind of like a little snub remark, most likely merely gold-plated. It's ten stories tall and it's gold-plated. I mean, (laughs) I don't know about you, but that's quite a lot of gold that strikes me. And so just think about the visibility of that. You know, English villages were built in a certain way so that people would be able to see the church. Whenever they tried to build a church in a village or a town, they tried to build it in a place where it was the tallest building within the village and the the most visible point within the village, if at all possible. This thing must have been visible for miles around. And so my title, because I promised you a title a few moments ago, is have we made our God too small? Have we made our God too small? You see, when an idol is this big, how easy must it have been for the people? How easy could it be for us today? To look to something that size and simply go, wow, that's amazing. That's incredible. How easy is it for us to put our faith in something other than the living God? You see, so often I find myself reading Bible stories with mild disdain for the people of God. And 
this is just one of my things. I mean, I'm just sharing for a moment here. We all have stuff that we do that isn't great, and this is one of mine. I read these Bible stories, and I think, you idiots, how did you, I mean, for goodness sake, how did you get this so badly wrong again? Because you see these stories, and you think, these are the people of God. We've gone from this mountaintop, most incredible experience, this awesome, amazing earth-shattering, life-changing, God-revelation. And then you turn the page and it's like, then the people did this stupid thing. (laughs) Does anyone else notice this? Am I the only one who's been reading my Bible thinking, these people are, for goodness sake, again? And then as you begin to dig into the story, you realise that there's more and more to it. You see, most people agree that it was roughly 18 years since last week's story. And by that, I simply mean if you haven't read or heard last week's story, go back. Listen to that amazing story where Daniel interprets the king's dream and he's able to tell him the dream. And he basically is sharing this amazing prophecy of all that's to come. And he's interpreting it from God's perspective because this is a revelation from God given to the king in the first place. And actually... Daniel is quoted more in the book of Revelation than any other prophet, which is incredible. And you begin to realise there is just so much, there's such richness to what's being revealed through this book. But as we're looking at this story, as we, st- as we step one week further, one chapter further, for the people of God, 18 years have gone by. And as I was reading this story, thinking, oh my word, these idiots again. And everybody's talking about how quickly the people are turning to worship this God. And on the king's part, I was thinking, crumbs, this man has had this incredible encounter with God, this divine revelation. And now he's trying to set up for himself and for his kingdom this new God. And you think, oh, for goodness sake. And then you remember it's been 18 years. And I don't know about you, but one stint of 18 years to the next, I observe that most of us seem to sin more than once. (laughs) Admittedly, this is a pretty colossal sin. And sin is just a catch-all term for those of you who aren't familiar with what the word means for the things that we do that are in rebellion to God. Anytime we set something up, as God in our lives. And for us, that can be so big. (laughs) A 10-story gold statue is quite a long way along the, the big end of the spectrum. And then down at the other end of the spectrum, there's all of those little things, you know, a white lie, an unkind word, You know, the book of James talks about taming of the tongue, and every time I read it, I think, crumbs, this is challenging to me again. And I thought I was doing pretty well since the last time I read this. And then I read it, and I think, oh, no, it's still challenging. (laughs) You know, Jesus even talked about the way you look at a person. If you look at them with anger, it's like you've killed them. If you look at them with lust, it's as though you've slept with them. I mean, he's really talking about how our heart defines us. But he's also talking about a spiritual reality. And and actually, when Jesus talks about sins, he talks about how all sins carry the same weight, 
the same punishment, the same wrong. And when, when we do any one of these things, the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. So it doesn't matter whether we're building gold statues in common meadow. It doesn't matter whether we're saying something unkind, uncharitable. It doesn't matter whether we're thinking something vile and hateful because somebody has been rude to us in the street and we think, oh, you know what, you just need to go and rot in a pit. (laughs) It doesn't matter, the whole spectrum, the whole spectrum between golden idols and stubbing your toe and thinking a swear word carry that same weight of judgment. And for us, that's why we need Jesus. But it's also why the book of Daniel is so amazing. Because before the people of God had Jesus to look to, they had this standard set for them. This incredible standard that was God's law, God's rule. We call it the old covenant and it it basically is how the people of God were instructed to live. And we needed Jesus because we weren't managing to live up to that standard. God said, okay, look, you just do this, that, and the other, and it'll be okay. Here are the rules. And sometimes today, that's how people think of church. They think of church as this club where you've got to follow all of these rules. And if you break any one of these rules, we're going to be really sassy and mean to you for a decade, or ask you to leave, or not give you the good biscuits. I don't know. <laughs> it, I mean, that might be the meanest thing you can do to a person in church, isn't it? I mean, what a visible snub. No, you can just have the custard creams. (laughs) But you see, if if we're really going to live for an audience of one, and I feel like this passage is a passage that reinforces that idea that we've talked about again and again, and I think we really need to get back to the heart of simple Christianity. And I think this is one of those key themes. We live and serve an audience of one. In fact, I think that's what we see in Daniel's life. That's what we see in Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego's lives. They are serving an audience of one. The person that matters more to them than anybody else is God. I'm sure they knew. They had been elevated time and again. I mean, at the end of last week's story, we'd heard that they'd been placed in positions of responsibility over great swathes of the city. Huge responsibility had been given to them. So I'm sure they knew that if they defied the king, there would be a problem. The fact that the Chaldeans are looking to catch them out, they're waiting for the opportunity to catch them out, and the moment the opportunity comes, they come scurrying along. And the king well, I don't know about you, I've, I've had a couple of bosses in life, some good, some not so good. I've never yet had a boss who had such a temper that he would stoke the furnace so hot that he was going to throw me into it. The chaps minding the furnace got burnt to death. Talk about having a fiery temper. And I'd just like to apologise for that awful pun. But you see, as we serve an audience of one, as we serve the God of heaven and earth, when we remember who it is we serve, God promises that he can turn all things to his good for those 
who are called according to his purposes, those who love him. And so this passage talking about serving an audience of one, this story where we see these men of God choosing, come what may, to honour God first, is a remarkable thing. Because actually the majority of the people in this story, the people that barely get a look in in this story, are all the rest of the people of God who pretty much seem to have just decided to go along with things. You know what's most remarkable about this story is that the list of people who are honouring God is so short. And the Bible isn't afraid of a long list of names or two. So I don't want us to miss that point just because the list is short. You see, the majority have agreed to worship this idol. They've fallen in with the culture. And for us in the UK, people so often think of this as a great Christian country and increasingly it's becoming a harder and harder place to be a Christian. And without getting all political about this, that or the other, actually, what is a Christian country? What is a Christian country? Is every single person in the country saved? Do all of our laws reference the Bible and if they don't stack up, we won't agree them? And so my question to you this morning is, what is it that you're worshipping? What is it that you're worshipping? For other people, they might be thinking, well, I don't have a thing that I'm worshipping Particularly, I just, I'm just so busy all the time. I, I haven't really even got time to think about what you're saying. I'd better come back to it later because I'm halfway through my list, Joel. And, you know, I, I just need to finish this to-do list and then I'll, I'll catch the rest of the service online. Perhaps your idol is busyness. Perhaps your idol is orderliness. You think if you can just get one more load of washing on and hung up, then you'll be able to focus on God. And something else has crept in, in front of God and heaven. You see, the amazing thing about these guys is they know that the king is a jerk. It's not a well-kept secret. We've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and they must know. They've been around long enough. They've been in leadership long enough that they know that the top boss isn't really a good guy. And their faithfulness before the furnace is something that I think doesn't seem like it makes sense until we remember that we serve an audience of one. One book I was reading said, you know, the thing that's most amazing about their faithfulness isn't that they're faithful. The amazing thing about their faithfulness is that they're faithful to God. Not amidst the uncertainty, but amidst the certainty of what is going to come. 
knowing the character and the heart of the king, knowing what is going to come. They choose to honour God because their faithfulness, their faith, placed in God is that it would be better to be with God than to be without. Their faith in heaven, their faith in their heavenly father. You know, we get terribly upset when somebody thinks badly of us. We get terribly worked up and confused and we feel like we need justice and if we can't get justice, well, this person's now my enemy and this person has treated me badly. And we struggle with the forgiveness that it takes to put God first. You know, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive me as I forgive others. What a dreadful thing to pray. (laughs) Just from a purely logical standpoint, what an awful thing to pray. What if God takes you up on that? Have you ever considered that? Forgive me as I forgive those who trespass, who sin, who do something wrong to me. Have these guys done something incredible? Have they forgiven the king for his anger before he's even tried to put them to death? Some people want to make a big thing about the parallel between the fiery furnace and the fires of hell. And you know, I'm sure there's a great sermon in there, but this is what I want to say to that point this morning. So many people fear death. But the word of God says, the fear of God is the beginning of understanding. What is there that is more worth fearing than God? We've encouraged one another over the past 20 or 30 years to think of God as our mate, as our friend, as daddy rather than the king of kings and the lord of lords. And I fear that we're making God too small. I fear that we're making God too small. You see, you read a story like this and the kind of climax of this story is that they're thrown into the fiery furnace. They're thrown into the fiery furnace and they are not consumed. The people stoking the fire are consumed, but there they are having a little stroll. Have we made our God too small? You see, it's so easy to get worked up and worried about so many things, and I'm not suggesting that we need to start you know, meandering through life with this entitled sense of irresponsibility that we never consider what's good and righteous ever again. We never worry, we never do the washing, we never have a shower again. That that isn't the response to this story that I'm looking for. But those things in your life that consume you, that you worry about, that are playing on your mind, perhaps even this morning, in the midst of this sermon. Those things that would be distracting you, And you know, let me just say, if you hear nothing else this morning, because I think it's so easy when you're listening to a sermon to just let your mind wander and you hear this and that and the other. If you hear nothing else, 
Would you question with me if you have made God too small? The king of heaven and earth, the king that made the heavens and the earth. Some people, they, they say they love experiencing God in nature. They see the, the magnitude of creation and it's, you know, the intricacies of the detail of a flower, of a petal. Other people say that they feel that they see God best, perhaps when they go somewhere like the beach. I love looking at the ocean, I find it. When I consider the ocean and the strength of a wave, I don't know if you've ever been in the midst of a wave, perhaps you've been surfing or swimming in the sea. You know that moment when a wave comes crashing in and it just completely wipes you out and you suddenly realise how small and powerless you are. I don't love that feeling, but the magnitude of the ocean strikes me. Literally strikes you. Knocks you off your feet. And when you stop and you reflect that God made that. The magnitude of creation. Have we made our God too small? Then we see... God's great glory in this story God will be glorified it's so easy to be over familiar and they say familiarity breeds contempt we read this story and you know the king meanders along if you've seen the children's cartoon or you've seen the children's picture bible I grew up with one of those there's the king looking rather splendid big chap nice cloak comes meandering up to the cave and that's not really how this went. He doesn't kind of come to a cave entrance where there's a bit of a fire in the background. We've already heard that the fire is so, so roaring that people even standing by the entrance have been consumed by this fire. I mean, I'm sure they weren't going to draw the fire as was for all the children because they'd never sleep again. I mean, crumbs, there are children that can't make it through Doctor Who these days. If you actually presented them with the realities that the Bible talks about, they wouldn't sleep for a month. So the king comes charging down to check on the fire, which is still absolutely roaring. I mean, this thing must be a, an inferno. Because he's just desperate to see if these chaps are there. And we get this amazing description of the people in the fire. and One looks like a son of God. and He calls out to them, oh, could you pop on out in the children's cartoon version? Guys, guys, come on. <laughs> like a little boy inviting his friends out to come and play football in the street. Do you want to come out? <laughs> it's, it's absurd. It's totally absurd. We've read this story. We've seen what it says. This fire is absolutely raging still. It's still going. It's not like it's burnt out. It says he came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. And he declared, calling on their name, servant of the most high God, come out and come here. And they came out of the fire. The fire's still burning. It's not a little bonfire that you're going to toast some marshmallows over. And it doesn't say that they came out smelling a bit smoky. It doesn't say that they came out slightly singed. They just come walking out. 
they come walking out of the midst of fear and uncertainty. They come walking out of this danger. Literally, they come walking out through the flames. And then in our lives, we, it gets to Monday and we struggle to trust God with our week. It gets to Tuesday and we struggle to trust God at work. It gets to Wednesday and we're ready to kill one of our family and we're despairing of them totally. Don't even get me started on Thursday. <laughs> you see, we read this story. We read this story about God's glory, about God's rescue, about God's perfect plan, about the power and the awesomeness of God at work. We read this story of a miracle. And we say, oh, God's great. We glorify God. And in a minute, we're going to close out with a final song. And, you know, we're all going to sit here wishing that we could sing and thinking, oh, yeah, God's great. God's amazing. But are we really trusting in God with our whole hearts? What does radical obedience look, in our, look like in our lives? What does it look like for us to be Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego this week? And as we look to the cross, as we look to Jesus, his death and his resurrection for our sake, our sin, how much more will God bless and love us those that he has chosen to call a part of his family. Not just friends, not just servants, not even just his people, but adopted through Christ into his family. What does us trusting in God look like? You know, this story finishes with the king saying, you know, no other God can save the way God has saved. No other God can save. And he makes this decree that anyone who speaks out against God, this, that, and the other terrible thing is going to happen to them. And I think, and again, he's missed the point already. What is wrong with this guy? <laughs> you know, we always read these stories and we say, what's it going to look like for you to be Shadrach, Meshach or Abednego in your week this week? And, and actually, perhaps the challenge to us isn't which one of those three guys are you going to look like? Perhaps the challenge is, how are you not going to look like the king this week? God moves in power. God blesses you. God does something incredible for you, for a loved one. What will your response be? Are you a servant of God? Are you placing your trust in him? You know, that's the hardest thing about being a Christian leader. The hardest thing about being on any leadership team, any position of responsibility in the church. The greatest challenge to us is to trust in God.
Because it's easy to encourage somebody else to. It's easy to say, oh, let's pray about it. Oh, yeah, that's dreadful. Why don't we find five people and we'll lay hands on you? You know, pre-pandemic, obviously. I think that counts as assault at the moment. But (laughs) what does it look like for us to come together as the people of God and put God first? There is no other God who can save in this way. And that same God, the same God we hear about in this story, the same God who saves those who are faithful to him from the fiery furnace, that same God, that same God offers to be God in our lives too. What does it look like for you to take this story seriously this week? Who are you going to be in this story? Have we made our God too small? Is he too small for us to place all of our hope and trust in? Is he too small for us to believe that he's this person as well as the person we imagine? When anxiety creeps in, when fear wakes us, when hope fails us, Jesus doesn't. And so whether we're serving this audience of one or not, whether we really realise what that means as we reflect on a story like this one and we consider what it means to have faith amidst almost certain failure in the natural. Because in the natural we see the story of people standing in faith before a fiery furnace. What will God's great glory look like in your life? Are you going to respond like the king and miss the point and say, why anyone who doesn't take this seriously will do something dreadful to We like the Chaldeans and the people of God who don't understand who God is and get swept along in the the moment, the culture, the age? Or will we look something like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? Something like Daniel? Something like the people in our stories? The heroes in the story? Rather than just another character. You know the only way this story makes sense is if God is God. So where are you placing your faith? What is God in your life? You know if you take God out of this story the whole story falls apart. Have we made our God too small? It's so easy for us to make God in our image, in our way of thinking, to fit our theology for our purposes, in our timing. You know, our unstoppable God 
king of heaven and earth. Our amazing God. Our God that even 18 years later continues to be faithful to his people. And this is me wrapping up. I've finished what I, I wanted to say, but let me just um, indulge me for just two more minutes. You know, it's so easy to hear these stories, to come to church, to tune in online, and to miss the point entirely. And actually, just as I started out this morning's message saying, I find it mind-blowing that people can miss the point. How can the, the people of God miss the point again and again and again? God does an incredible thing, and then the next page they miss the point themselves, and you think... Silly people of God, silly Israelites got it wrong again. It's so easy to read your Bible going, oh my word, what is wrong with these people? But if somebody wrote our story, what would that look like? A hundred, a thousand, two, three thousand years from now. What would our story of faith look like? Would we manage 18 years between us doing something stupid or would it be more like 18 minutes? What does it look like for us to be a people of faith? Would our names even make it into the story? Shelby talked about the lecture he'd heard from Martin Robinson this week and you know, Martin's a great speaker. I'm sure he's right when he says if 80% of the people were doing something, then the church would be growing. If 5% were doing something, then this, that, and the other would happen. You know, let's not be settling for 5%, 80%. What are we going to do? What will be our shared collective contribution? Not just to this church, not just to Stone, not just to Ainsford, not just to the churches around us, but more than that. What will be our collective effort for Jesus? You see, every single one of us has the opportunity to respond in faith or fear. But the thing that troubles me most of, most of all is that you know, as the Bible talks about being hot or cold or lukewarm, apathy is the thing that seems to have befallen so much of the church, big capital C. Have we made our God too small? Isn't just a, a fun line from a children's hymn. It's a sincere question. God in your life, what percentage of your time is going into thinking about him? How much faith and hope are you daring to place in him? And I know the last year has been hard and perhaps like me you're feeling weary. You know God answers that too. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest.
but you see a little rest, a little sleep, a little slumber. That, that isn't where we stop. That's part of the journey. We don't want to be a people that get used to stopping, being stopped, resting. We want to be the people of God who are following after the King of heaven and earth. And the good news in Jesus is too good for us to not keep going. Every single one of us is going to have to answer that question for ourselves. And actually, as we start working towards relaunching, replanting Ainsford as a church, as we look at reopening Stone as a church, and as we make great inroads there, plans are coming together. Actually, you know, the thing we need more than anything else is for us to collectively come together, to serve together, to be church together, to decide actually what we're going to do is we're going to step up and be counted. We don't want to be a people of apathy. We're not going to be a people who are marked by fear. We're going to be the people of God called according to his purposes. I said two minutes and it's been five, so let me close with this final question. If God doesn't seem big enough to you, If God doesn't seem big enough to you, why don't you simply ask him to reveal more of himself to you? It's not a rhetorical question. That's a, it's an encouragement as well as a question. But pray, seek God, read his word, hear about who he is, his incredible power, his strength, his ability to save, whether it's from the fiery furnace or whether it's through the power of Jesus, his death and resurrection. Why don't you spend a moment and reflect on God's glory? And if you're struggling to see it, why don't you pray and ask to see more of it this week? If you're afraid, why don't you pray to see a greater measure of God in your week? If you're feeling tired, lazy, apathetic, why don't you ask to see a greater measure of God in your week? If you've never led anyone to Christ, why don't you ask to see a greater measure of God at work this week? Why don't you ask for an opportunity to share? Well, I'm just going to pray for us and then um, we're going to welcome the guys back up to, and we're going to sing the creed, our final hymn this morning. But um, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Father, help us not to lose sight of who you are. Help us not to lose sight of your bigness, your power, your awe, and your might. You truly are an awesome God. Father, we thank you that you're bigger than any idol set on a plane, ten stories or, 
or bigger, we thank you that you created the heavens and the earth. Father, who can comprehend your vastness, your glory? We pray that you'd help us to trust in you, to unite ourselves with your purposes, and to hope after your glory. Help us to put you first. Father, if we're weary, help us to rest in you. knowing that we will run and not grow weary when we renew our strength in the Lord. We bless and praise your name, King Jesus. May we see more of you at work in our lives. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.